0: Part of the Buddhist tradition is to build chetiyas, stupas, to house the relics of the Buddha or arahants. And traditionally they build chedis, however big or small, however ornate, they build them to last, solid foundations and indeed some Chaitiyas that were built thousands of years ago are still existing in the world today so even though we contemplate impermanence one of the constant reflections we develop in our practice doesn't mean to say that uh, developing a sense of solidity or enduring qualities or enduring buildings has no place in Buddhism. When we do put effort into building monuments and shrines particularly to the Buddha or to Arahants, it's an offering to the current generation and to future generations giving them some focal point for their practice, a reminder place to reflect on the Dhamma and to bring out faith and energy for further practice. It reminds us that if we haven't reached Nibbana yet then we may also be coming back in future lifetimes. We may have been around in previous lifetimes, even in previous Buddhist eras. Something to reflect on when we meet with obstacles in our practice, we say going through difficult periods, one of the reflections we can bring up is that (coughs) we have made the good karma to be able to get to this point in our life, that we've come in contact with the Buddhist teachings, even had the opportunity to ordain practice as a monk, a bhikkhu, based on our merit, the causes and conditions we've developed in the past. So we can even be grateful to that person. We could say ourselves or we could say that person that we were previously, that they were willing to practice and that we are reaping the benefits of their practice As we know when we hear about the lives of the great Arahants in the time of the Buddha, the leading disciples, the reason they became one of the 80 leading disciples of the Buddha is because they had made previous resolutions, determinations with that goal in mind So according to the commentaries we hear of different Arahants in the previous life, maybe they've met a Buddha or a Buddha with his retinue of monks and been inspired enough to make a strong determination to practice, to realize both the fruit of Arahantship and also to be a and leading Arahant under a future Buddha, like Mahakasapa, one comes to mind. Say so in a, the life of a previous Buddha, he was a layman, invited the Buddha to his house with a retinue of monks for dana. And one monk came to the house but stood outside with his alms bowl, as we do on alms round, and wouldn't receive an invitation to come into the house for the food and the comfort that was on offer. He would just take food at the front gate and then walked away. And Mahakasapa in that life was very inspired and intrigued why this monk wouldn't come into the house. So he asked the Buddha, and the Buddha said, well, he's taken on the ascetic practice, he won't eat in the house, just eats in his arm bowl alms bowl, lives in the forest under a tree out in the open and takes on a number of Tudonga practices and that inspired Mahakasapa in that life to make a, a wish, an aspiration to practice for the same kind of goal to become an a Siti Sawaka under a Buddha foremost in the ascetic practices Aditana resolution plays a role in our practice sometimes short term Aditana is just to get something done learn a chant Aditana to sit or walk meditation for a period of time or to do a certain act of karma, merit-making or to serve a senior monk or any number of things we can do. So it's part of our practice, (coughs) recognizing the power of resolutions and ethanas when you focus your mind on a, a goal that maybe is stretching you, but still within the bounds of possibility, so it's a way of summoning up effort, they say harder, persistent effort towards a goal, a wholesome goal. They say that's a very powerful conditioning force in our mind. It will reoccur, helps to clear away some of the hindrances that constantly beset us and cause us mental disturbance, cause us to doubt, cause us to stray from the practice. Very, very powerful force. But An aditana isn't just made on willpower alone, it's made with wisdom and understanding of our limits and our abilities. It's made with faith and with the aim to be a skillful means to bring up energy, more energy in the practice. Our Buddha, Gautama the Buddha praised Mahakasapa as one who kept up the ascetic practices, the donga practices, even when he was an older bhikkhu, he wouldn't give them up. Even when the Buddha invited him to, said he'd keep them up to be an example for younger, newer yeah. bhikkhus and for future generations. If you think about it, it's amazing that we know about a monk, Mahakasapa, how he lived, his character, the way he practiced, over two-and-a-half thousand years afterwards we still know about him. Aditana also has an effect, leaves an impression on our own mind and it can also leave an impression on other people's minds, can inspire, it's the stuff of legends. Even though the Buddha didn't promote Mahakasapa as his heir to take over the leadership of the Sangha, he did encourage the bhikkhus to look to him for guidance because he was a senior monk. And Sariputta and Moggallana, who were the right and left hand monks, either side of the Buddha, the Buddha must have known that their lifespan wouldn't be as long as Mahakasapa. After the Buddha was gone, they are also gone. So the Sangha did look to Mahakassapa for some guidance. Invited him to be the leader of the first council. He's the only bhikkhu that exchanged robes with the Buddha and when he left the lay life he went wandering to look for his teacher with the aim of ordaining as a monk and he found the Buddha under, sitting under a tree. They say the Buddha <coughs> was emanating the radiance of his bharami for 80 meters in all directions on the morning that Mahakasapa left home looking for his teacher, wandering through the forest, saw a great light emanating from a grove of trees, came across the Buddha sitting in the book. Buddha called him by his name, Kasapa, or I think it was Bipali in those days. That was enough to convince him that this must be an enlightened teacher. So he made An aspiration and requested uh, to train under the Buddha. So his ordination was the Buddha said we well, have to keep to three practices at least under me. The first is you should always have hiriyotapa towards other members of the Sangha, whether junior or senior. You should always have a sense of shame, respect, fear of wrongdoing in your relations with other sangha members so even the most junior sangha member you don't lose your Hiryotapa. that was one of his ordination vows very simple form of ordination in those days another was that he should always listen to the Dhamma with respect whenever the Buddha or another enlightened disciple is teaching Dhamma should always respect the Dhamma that he's listening to and remember it The third part of his ordination was, the Buddha said you should always take delight in practicing mindfulness directed to the body. Gaya, Katha, Satipatthana. Said as long as you keep to these three practices, you'll progress in the Dhamma, in the ordained well that was his donation and then the Buddha invited him to walk with him to Rajka as they were walking can't remember how it happened but they they exchanged robes at some point I'm not sure what the reason was Kasapha had his robes he offered them to the Buddha and the Buddha said, yeah, I'll accept them, but can you accept my shabby old robes, patched? And uh, Kasapa said, yes, these were robes that had been made from corpse cloth. And in accepting the Buddha's set of robes for himself, they say that's where his determination to keep the Dudanga practices began in that life. And it was a sign that the Buddha recognized that and was as if confirming, it yes, he's one who will keep the ascetic practices in this life. So they swapped robes and walked on. And they say within seven days, Kasapa became an Arahant. But even after he was an Arahant, very popular, but he never... Went Bindabhata in the wealthy parts of town. He always stayed in the forest, tended to choose poorer areas, more difficult places to obtain arms. Always kept to the Tudonga practices, Tudonga tradition. So he was often known as a disciplinarian. Some monks didn't like him, were jealous or frightened of him because they knew he kept the rules, kept the Vinaya very strictly. (coughs) And you would talk to the Buddha about the behavior of the monks, especially in the later years of the Buddha's life. Point out some of the faults in the Sangha when monks were not respectful of the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, and they are too attached to gains and comfort. On one occasion there were two monks who were competing to be the best Dhamma speaker, give the most beautiful, the longest, the most eloquent Dhamma talks. They hadn't actually practiced and realized the Dhamma yet.
1: So the
0: Buddha, uh, Kasapa, talked to the Buddha about this. The Buddha invited Kasapa to give a teaching, but he declined. On many occasions he declined to teach. Very shy, very humble in that sense. And part of our inheritance as forest monks is to put effort into to Donga practices so we eat in our bowl. Often we take periods where we just eat in the bowl, no other meals or food from other vessels. Just eat one sitting, one vessel. Lumpurcha encouraged us to keep to the nesajika practice also on one pra Uposata. In the half moon days, just to keep to three postures. If you're really tired, just to lean against something for a while, for a rest, then carry on sitting and walking for a night. Practice frugality and simplicity. Sometimes we take on the three robe practice. Even though in cold climate, we tend to have to use accessories you can still keep three main robes, G1, Sankati, Sabong. If you're very careful, you just have a Sabong and a bathing cloth. If you take that practice on, you have to be very careful at work periods to look after your robe. But our lifestyle, even if we're not t- taking on all the 13 Tudonga practices, it's based around them. Eating in the bowl, living in the forest, living simply, reflecting on death and impermanence. Occasionally, even get the opportunity to obtain corpse cloth, Kula, Chiwara. Part of that is our inheritance from Mahakasapa so we can be grateful to him to his great determination to keep up those practices and promote them to support our general training in Dhamma Vinaya you would say the Dutonga practices form part of the of our sila practice of sila it's interesting how we sometimes talk about the different qualities and techniques of meditation that we develop as monks. Some monks are more they favor the development of samatha and samadhi. Others develop wisdom. Sometimes they use wisdom to develop samadhi. Sometimes monks develop samadhi and then develop wisdom afterwards. Even though they're two parts of the same thing, different component parts of the Eightfold Noble Path, and we only have one mind that develops these qualities. We do talk in this way, because people have different characters. But at the same time, there's no two ways with sila. The practice of Vinaya is something we all Buddhist monks have to take on and establish as the foundation of their practice. So they traditionally, they say you build a chedi with a strong foundation so it lasts and it symbolizes the sila as our foundation of our practice because that's really we, where we get our stability. Whether we do have skill with samadhi or wisdom, we have no choice but to commit to the sila and use that to develop the mind. All monks are the same in that respect. We may not all keep all the Dutonga practices but the basic Vinaya, the Patimoka, the restraint in the Vinaya, we all develop. Because the Buddha said there's no way to complete the path, to purify the mind, to develop Satipatthana, say, four foundations of mindfulness without sila as a basis. The Eightfold Path cannot be developed. Enlightenment can't be reached without sila. So much of our practice, especially in the beginning, is just learning to accept this and understand how to practice to develop a wise attitude to sila. Because obviously sometimes we forget ourselves, our speech, our actions fall outside the vinaya we have to learn how to re-establish our commitment to keep the precepts to use them as a a way of training the mind to develop wholesome dhammas and abandon unwholesome dhammas it's another conversation Mahakasapa had with the Buddha was about how the Dhamma Vinaya disappears from the world and it's when practitioners, not just monks, but nuns and lay, men, lay women, who make up the group of Buddhists who practice when they're not willing to develop the four right efforts, meaning when an individual has an unwholesome mental state arise and they're not willing to abandon it or make that effort to abandon it, to go against that habit of mind. If they're not willing to do that, that's where you could say Buddhism, the Buddhist path or Buddhist teachings degenerate. That's where it begins. When we lose our hiriyotapa, our sense of shame, then we're content to let unwholesome states of mind sit there, dwell in the mind, maybe even we embellish them, make them stronger. We're not willing to restrain the mind to prevent unwholesome states that haven't arisen from arising. We're not willing to abandon those that have arisen. We're not willing to put effort to develop and bring up wholesome states of mind and we're not willing to maintain those wholesome states that have arisen. That's one way of looking at the practices how willing are we to to practice and develop the four right efforts. Obviously we have our own karmic conditioning so negative, unwholesome, unskillful states of mind do arise. The important thing is how do we deal with them? First of all we recognise them for what they are, their defilement, rooted in greed, anger, delusion of one sort or another. So the first task is to recognize, second task is to practice accordingly, appropriately, according to the Dhamma. So to make the effort to abandon them, not to put them into action, if they have an unskillful intention leading us to act or speak, or to do our best to cut it off, restrain the mind. Or if we have spoken, we have acted, then to quickly give up that behavior, as it were, disown it. Not disown it in a way that's irresponsible and not admit our wrongdoing or our fault, but to disown the intention and the wish to have that intention in mind and to keep acting on it. Much of our practice is based around this. Improving, sharpening our mindfulness and wisdom to do this well. To recognize what is unwholesome in our motivation, in our intentions and to start addressing that, abandoning it, replacing it with more wholesome, dhammas. This is where we're going against the stream of the world as we train in this. The stream of the world is often coming from greed, anger, and delusion. We've been affected by it, conditioned by it in the past, and often the people around us in the world are still conditioned by greed, hatred, and delusion, and they see nothing wrong with it. They see it as normal, even right, correct, to follow greed, anger, and delusion. So part of our practice of sila and then we could say wisdom discernment is to discern what is a defilement and a defiled way of behaving whether it's through body speech or mind We have to discern defilement and then deal with it accordingly appropriately part of the use of aditana and resolution is to do this well as we bring up the strength of mind to say no to unwholesome acts of body, speech and mind. Maybe just to hold our tongue when we want to lash out at someone or give an unneeded opinion of you or criticize someone, put them down. Just that restraint of tongue. Sometimes it takes a lot of effort. Mental, maybe the mental state is already wanting us to, conditioning us to say something unwholesome then the Dhamma comes up and just restrains us and we don't give in the, to, the, to the intention to speak. Sometimes it takes a lot of effort, physical and mental exertion. And this is going against the stream of Kelesa, going against the stream of the world. Sometimes it's actions. Just simple things like getting up in the morning, going to sleep at night. Sometimes we go against the stream so we don't go to sleep when we want to. We get up when we maybe, again we've made a determination to get up at a certain time. And we have to follow that through even though part of the mind is just wanting to to sleep, to lie down, to indulge. This is where we're building our strength of mind and building, developing the path, developing right effort, right mindfulness, using right view to help guide the mind. right view is is our training in wisdom, developing right intention, right view. As long as we have right view, then it's like we have a light or a torch, a a lantern so we can walk in the dark, go into dark places and we can get around. The opposite is wrong view, avicah, which is like the darkness of the mind, makes us sleepy, makes us unaware of the truth, and is the cause of our suffering and stress as human beings. So the more effort we put into developing right view, listening to Dhamma, like Mahakasapa, respecting it, remembering it, using it. This is where the beginning of the process of awakening comes, illuminating the mind. But then we also have to internalize it, and reflect <coughs> on the Dhamma that we have heard and thought about, and now I have to reflect on it deeply. And to reflect well, we also develop mindfulness, you have to develop the steadiness, mindfulness and then samadhi, the calm, so that we can hold attention long enough to see what's going on, to see the different thoughts and intentions and moods arising, to see what they're doing to the mind, to see the consequences of our actions and so on. We have to be able to hold our attention long enough, pay attention long enough to do that. This is why we use the monastic form to support regular practice, regular sitting meditation, regular walking meditation, regular wise reflection, even when we're active doing different things. Keep coming back to the mind itself in the present moment, keep observing, keep recognizing, Kilesa, recognizing skillful qualities when they arise, to hold on to them and maintain them, to start learning what's lacking in the mind and the practice, what's there already that needs to be built on, what's lacking that needs to be brought up more. Yeah, these are the skills of the practitioner. We also have to be more and more honest with ourselves, even scrupulous. So obviously the, the way our ijā works, is a bit like, say mice in buildings, it's they love to find the darkest corner that they know they're safe, because nobody goes there, nobody can reach in there, so that they can make a nest and hang out and then just come out occasionally to get food and then disappear back to their dark corner. Our HR is like that. We have parts of our mind, our conditioning that is dark. And it's we're so used to it, maybe you don't even see it. Or if we've seen it, we don't really know what to do with it or how to get there. It's like these dark corners. But this is where we're Our suffering is coming from the dark corners, the avicca conditions our behavior. So we keep dropping into habits, habits of thinking and then speech and then actions and often repeatedly causing ourselves stress, even causing other stress and suffering. The only way is to keep illuminating the darkness of the mind using the factors of the path and being willing to do that and being honest So we regularly come back to observe our practice of the Vinaya where we might need to put more effort in. We regularly come back to our practice of meditation every day seeing where the mind is at, how well are we restraining the hindrances. If we meditate in the morning, we still can't do it. The mind is still caught up in one hindrance or another. Well, can we do it later in the day? can't do it later in the day, can we do it in the evening or the night time? So the practice can be almost like a personal challenge. We set ourselves goals in our meditation, we set ourselves goals and aditanas in different aspects of our daily routine, our precepts, our sina, learning chanting, learning the Dhamma, all of these things can be areas where we build up a sense of resolution, determined effort in the practice, set ourselves goals, short-term goals, medium-term, long-term goals. This is how other monks have practiced since the time of the Buddha. You read about the lives of the great disciples. This is one part of their practice learning to put attention and make very prominent different aspects of the practice, the development of mindfulness, of samadhi, development of wisdom, learning to reflect and keep reflecting on the Dhamma as Dhamma, rather than always grasping everything with a sense of self, my thought, my problem, my feelings, my life, actually learning to train in discernment and wisdom, stepping back from experience, looking back at ourselves within the experience, what's going on, looking at the kandas as kandas. body as body, feeling as feeling, memory as memory, thought formations as thought formations, sense consciousness as sense consciousness as these things are arising and passing, actually seeing them, looking at them in that way. Sometimes we do it through reflecting after the event, we have no choice. Previously we had a lot of avicca, darkness, overcoming the mind. Then we come out of it, the mind brightens a bit. But we can, at that point, we can look back on what went before and at least learn after the event. Other times mindfulness is sharp enough we catch things arising as they're arising. Different thought formations, intentions arising, recognizing unskillful intentions and quickly cutting them off. Maybe even predicting. Based on past experience we can predict where kalesas will arise and we steer clear certain situations, people, events, that stir up our kilesas When our practice is still weak, sometimes we predict and then avoid, find skillful means to avoid falling into further and further kalesa arising, causing us trouble. These are kind of skills we're developing skills of a bhikkhu, sila, samadhi, panya, bringing some firmness to the mind, building on that, using the four right efforts, keep abandoning kalesa, bringing up skillful means, skillful ways. One of the last conversations, Kasapa had with the Buddha, he's talking about the decline of people's minds and the practice of Dhamma and as often they compared it to the moon and when somebody's putting effort into the practice then their mind brightens like the brightening moon but when they start to lose heart, stop putting effort into the practice, it's like the waning moon starts fading getting smaller and darker as the days go by. And just that reflection, every day we can keep referring back to our own mind. Find skillful ways to brighten it with our practice of the Samadhi Panya. You start noticing, if you notice your mind is darkening, then that's like a warning sign. Maybe there's something you're not picking up on, not seeing, maybe effort is slacking. Maybe we were getting too attached or distracted by something. And you see it just in the, the result, you see in the, in the the waning moon of the mind. It's dimming, darkening. So that should be a, like a wake-up call. call to urgency to put more effort into the practice, be more careful with our sila reflect on the Dhamma more, put effort, more effort into mindfulness practice, sitting, walking, meditation. The moon is very much part of our tradition. We use it as a way just to measure time, the waxing moon, the waning moon, the opposite of days and so on. It's it's a good reflection to just see how your own mind is waxing and waning almost from hour to hour day to day in our practice and start to catch it if it is waning see what's going wrong what's what's needed to brighten it again so I'll leave you with these reflections tonight